Chapter 10 After some weeks of study, I still seemed to be as far as ever from solving the salient problem of how the wolves made a living. This was a vital problem, since solving it in a way satisfactory to my employers was the reason for my expedition. Caribou are the only large herbivores to be found in any numbers in the Arctic barren lands. Although once as numerous as the plains buffalo, they had shown a catastrophic decrease during the three or four decades preceding my trip to the Barrens. Evidence obtained by various government agencies from hunters, trappers, and traders seemed to prove that the plunge of the caribou toward extinction was primarily due to the depredations of the wolf. It therefore must have seemed a safe bet to the politici politicians come scientists who had employed me that a research study of wolf-caribou relationships in the barrens would uncover incontrovertible proof with which to damn the wolf wherever he might be found and provide a more than sufficient excuse for the adoption of a general campaign for his extirpation. I did my duty, but although I had searched diligently for evidence which would please my superiors, I had so far found none nor did it appear I was likely to. Toward the end of June, the last of the migrating caribou herds had passed Wolf House Bay, heading for the high barrens some two or three hundred miles to the north, where they would spend the summer. Whatever my wolves were going to eat during those long months, and whatever they were going to feed their hungry pups, it would not be caribou, for the caribou were gone. But if not caribou... What was it to be? I canvassed all the other possibilities I could think of, but there seemed to be no source of food available which would be adequate to satisfy the appetites of three adult and four young wolves. Apart from myself, and the thought recurred several times, there was hardly any animal left in the country which could be considered suitable prey for a wolf. Arctic hares were present, but they were very scarce and so fleet of foot that a wolf could not hope to catch one unless he was extremely lucky. Ptarmigan and other birds were numerous, but they could fly, and the wolves could not. Lake trout, arctic grayling, and whitefish filled the lakes and rivers, but wolves are not otters. The days passed and the mystery deepened. To make the problem even more inscrutable, the wolves seemed reasonably well-fed, and to baffle me to the point of near insanity, the two male wolves went off hunting every night and returned every morning, but never appeared to bring anything home. <clears throat> as far as I could tell, the whole lot of them seemed to be existing on a diet of air and water. Once, moved by a growing concern for their well-being, I went back to the cabin and baked five loaves of bread, which I then took to Wolf House Bay and left beside one of the hunting paths. My gift was rejected. It was even scorned. Or perhaps Uncle Albert, who discovered them, simply thought the loaves were some new sort of boundary posts which I had erected, and that they were to be treated accordingly. 
About this time, I began having trouble with mice. The vast expanses of spongy sphagnum bog provided an ideal milieu for several species of small rodents who could burrow and nest build to their heart's content in the ready-made mattress of moss. <clears throat> they did other things, too, and they just they must have done them with great frequency, for as June waned into July, the country seemed to become alive with little rodents. The most numerous species were the lemmings, which are famed in literature for their reputedly suicidal instincts, but which instead ought to be hymned for their unbelievable reproductive capabilities. Red-backed mice and meadow mice began invading Mike's cabin <clears throat> in such numbers that it looked as if I would soon be starving unless I could thwart their appetites for my supplies. They did not scorn my bread. They did not scorn my bed, either. And when I awoke one morning to find that a meadow mouse had given birth to eleven naked offspring inside the pillow of my sleeping bag, I began to know how Pharaoh must have felt when he antagonized the god of the Israelites. I suppose it was only because my own wolf indoctrination had been so complete and of such a staggeringly inaccurate nature that it took me so long to account for the healthy state of the wolves in the apparent absence of any game worthy of their reputation and physical abilities. The idea of wolves not only eating but actually thriving and raising their families on a diet of mice was so at odds with the character of the mythical wolf that it was really too ludicrous to consider. And yet, it was the answer to the problem of how my wolves were keeping the larder full. Angeline tipped me off. Late one afternoon, while the male wolves were still resting in preparation for the night's labors, she emerged from the den and nuzzled Uncle Albert until he yawned, stretched, and got laboriously to his feet. Then she left the den site at a trot, heading directly for me across a broad expanse of grassy muskeg, leaving Albert to entertain the, the pups as best he could. <clears throat> there was nothing particularly new in this. I had several times seen her con conscript Albert, and on rare occasions even George, to do duty as a babysitter while she went down to the bay for a drink, or, as I mistakenly thought, simply went for a walk to stretch her legs. Usually her peregrinations took her to the point of the bay farthest from my tent, where she was hidden from sight by a low gravel ridge. But this time she came my way in full view, and I swung my telescope to keep an eye on her. She went directly to the rocky foreshore, waded out until the icy water was up to her shoulders, and had a long drink. As she was doing so, a small flock of old squaw ducks flew around the point of the bay, and pitched only a hundred yards or so away from her. She raised her head and eyed them speculatively for a moment, then waded back to shore, where she proceeded to act as if she had suddenly become demented. <clears throat> Yipping like a puppy, she began to chase her tail, to roll over and over among the rocks, to lie on her back, to wave all four feet furiously in the air, and in general to behave as if she were clean out of her mind. I swung the glasses back to where Albert was sitting amidst a gaggle of pups to see if he, too, had observed this mad display, and, if so, what his re reaction to it was. 
He had seen it all right. In fact, he was watching Angeline with keen interest, but without the slightest indication of alarm. By this time, Angeline appeared to be in the throes of a manic paroxysm, leaping wildly into the air and snapping at nothing, the while uttering shrill squeals. It was an awe-inspiring sight, and I realized that Albert and I were not the only ones who were watching it with fascination. The ducks seemed hypnotized by curiosity. So interested were they that they swam in for a closer view of this apparition on the shore. Closer and closer they came, necks outstretched and gabbling incredulously among themselves. The closer they came, the crazier grew Angeline's behavior. When the leading duck was not more than 15 feet from shore, Angeline gave one gigantic leap towards it. There was a vast splash, a panic-stricken whacking of wings, and then all the ducks were up and away. Angeline had missed a dinner by no more than inches. This incident was an eye-opener since it suggested a versatility at food-getting which I would hardly have credited to a human being, let alone to a mere wolf. However, Angeline soon demonstrated that the charming of ducks was a mere sideline. Having dried herself with a series of energetic shakes, which momentarily hid her in a blue mist of water droplets, she padded back across the grassy swale. But now her movements were quite different from what they had been when she passed through the swale on the way to the bay. Angeline was a rangy build, of a rangy build anyway, but by stretching herself so that she literally seemed to be walking on tiptoe, and by elevating her neck like a camel, she seemed to gain several inches in height. She began to move infinitely slowly upwind across the swale, and I had the impression that both ears were cocked for the faintest sound, while I could see her nose wrinkling as she sifted the breeze for the most ephemeral sense. Suddenly she pounced. Flinging herself up on her hind legs like a horse trying to throw its rider, she came down again with driving force, both forelegs held stiffly out in front of her. Instantly her head dropped. She snapped once, swallowed, and returned to her peculiar mincing ballet across the swale. Six times in ten minutes she repeated the straight-armed pounce, and six times she swallowed without my having caught a glimpse of what it was that she had eaten. The seventh time, she missed her aim, spun around, and began snapping frenziedly in a tangle of cotton grasses. This time, when she raised her head, I saw quite un- unmistakably the tail and hindquarters of a mouse quivering in her jaws. One gulp, and it too was gone. Although I was much entertained by the spectacle of one of this continent's most powerful carnivores hunting mice, I did not really take it seriously. I thought Angeline was only having fun, snacking, as it were. But when she had eaten some twenty-three mice, I began to wonder. Mice are small, but twenty-three of them adds up to a fair-sized meal, even for a wolf. It was only later, by putting two and two together, that I was able to bring myself to an acceptance of the obvious. The wolves of Wolf Bay, and, by inference, at least all the barren land wolves, who were raising families outside the summer caribou range, were living largely, if not almost entirely, on mice. Only one point remained obscure, 
and that was how they transported the catch of mice, which in the course of an entire night must have amounted to a formidable number of individuals, back to the dens to feed the pups. I never did solve this problem until I met some of Mike's relations, one of them a charming fellow named Utek, who became a close friend and who was a first-rate, if untrained, naturalist, explained the mystery. Since it was impossible for the wolves to carry the mice home externally, they did the next best thing and brought them home in their bellies. I had already noticed that when either George or Albert returned from a hunt, they went straight to the den and crawled into it. Though I did not suspect it at the time, they were regurgitating the day's rations, already partially digested. Later in the summer, when the pups had abandoned the den in the esker, I several times saw one of the adult wolves regurgitating a meal for them. However, however if I had not known what they were doing, I probably would have misconstrued the action and spilt, still been no whit the wiser as to how the wolves carried home their spoils. The discovery that mice constituted the major item in the wolves' diet gave me a new interest in the mice themselves. I at once began a mouse survey. The preliminary operation consisted of setting some hundred and fifty mouse traps in a nearby bog in order to obtain a representative sample of the mouse population in terms of sex, age, density, and species. I chose an area of bog not far from my tent on the theory that it would be typical of one of the bogs hunted over by the wolves, and also because it was close at hand and would therefore allow me to tend my traps frequently. This choice was a mistake. The second day my trap line was set, George happened in that direction. I saw him coming and was undecided what to do. Since we were still scrupulously observing our mutual boundaries, I did not feel like dashing outside my enclave in an effort to head him off. On the other hand, I had no idea how he would react when he discovered that I had been poaching on his preserves. When he reached the edge of the bog, he snuffed about for a while, then cast a suspicious glance in my direction. Obviously, he knew I had been trespassing, but was at a loss to understand why. Making no attempt to hunt, he began walking through the cotton grass at the edge of the bog, and I saw, to my horror, that he was heading straight for a cluster of ten traps set near the burrows of a lem lemming colony. I had an instant flash of foreknowledge of what was going to happen, and without thought I leaped to my feet and yelled at the top of my voice, George, for God's sake, hold it! It was too late. My shout only startled him, and he broke into a trot. He went about ten paces on the level, and then he began climbing an unseen ladder to the skies. When some time later I went over to examine the site, I found he had scored six traps out of the possible ten. They could have done him no real harm, of course, but the shock and pain of having a number of his toes nipped simultaneously by an unknown antagonist must have been considerable. For the first and only time that I knew him, George lost his dignity. Yipping like a dog who has caught his tail in a door, he streaked for home, shedding mouse traps like confetti as he went. I felt very badly about the incident. It might easily have resulted in a serious rupture in our relations. 
That it did not do so, I can only attribute to the fact that George's sense of humor, which was well-developed, led him to accept the affair as a crude practical joke, of the kind to be expected from a human being. Chapter 11 The realization that the wolves' summer diet consisted chiefly of mice did not conclude my work in the field of dietetics. I knew that the mouse-wolf relationship was a revolutionary one to science and would be treated with suspicion, and possibly with ridicule, unless it could be so thoroughly substantiated that there would be no room to doubt its validity. I had already established two major points, that wolves caught and ate mice that the small rodents were sufficiently numerous to support the wolf population. There remained, however, a third point vital to the proof of my contention. This concerned the nutritional value of mice. It was imperative for me to prove that a diet of small rodents would suffice to maintain a large carnivore in good condition. I recognized that this was not going to be an easy task. Only a controlled experiment would do, and since I could not exert the necessary control over the wolves, I was at a loss how to proceed. Had Mike still been in the vicinity, I might have borrowed two of his huskies, and, by feeding one of them on mice alone and the other on caribou meat, if and when this became obtainable, and then subjecting both dogs to similar tests, I would have been able to adduce the proof for or against the validity of mouse-wolf concept. But Mike was gone, and I had no idea when he might return. For some days I pondered the problem, and then one morning, while I was preparing some lemmings and meadow mice as specimens, inspiration struck me. Despite the fact that man is not wholly carnivorous, I could see no valid reason why I should not use myself as a test subject. It was true that there was only one of me, but the difficulty this posed could be met by setting up two timed intervals during one of which I would confine myself to a mouse diet, while during a second period of equal length, I would eat canned meat and fresh fish. At the end of each period, I would run a series of physiological tests upon myself and finally compare the two sets of results. While not absolutely conclusive, as far as wolves were concerned, evidence that my metabolic functions remained unimpaired under a mouse regimen would strongly indicate that wolves, too, could survive and function normally on the same diet. There being no time like the present, I resolved to begin the experiment at once. Having cleaned the basin full of small corpses, which remained from my morning session of mouse skinning, I placed them in a pot and hung it over my primus stove. The pot gave off a most delicate and delicious odor as the water boiled, and I was in excellent appetite by the time the stew was done. Eating these small mammals presented something of a problem at first because of the numerous minute bones. 
However, I found that the bones could be chewed and swallowed without much difficulty. The taste of the mice, a purely subjective factor and not in the least relevant to the experiment, was pleasing, if rather bland. As the experiment progressed, this blandness led to a degree of boredom and consequent loss of appetite, and I was forced to seek variety in my methods of preparation. Of the several recipes which I developed, the finest by far was creamed mouse. And in the event that any of my readers may be interested in personally exploiting this hitherto overlooked source of excellent animal protein, I give the recipe in full. Sorus a la creme. Ingredients. One dozen fat mice. One cup white flour. One piece sow belly. Salt and pepper. Cloves ethyl alcohol. I should perhaps note that sow belly is normally only available in the Arctic, but ordinary salt pork can be substituted. Skin and gut the mice, but do not remove the heads. Wash, then place in a pot with enough alcohol to cover the carcasses. Allow to marinate for about two hours. Cut sow belly into small cubes and fry slowly until most of the fat has been rendered. Now remove the carcasses from the alcohol and roll them in a mixture of salt, pepper, and flour. Then place in frying pan and saute for about five minutes, being careful not to allow the pan to get too hot or the delicate meat will dry out and become tough and stringy. Now add a cup of alcohol and six or eight cloves. Cover the pan and allow to simmer slowly for 15 minutes. The cream sauce can be made according to any standard recipe. When the sauce is ready, drench the carcasses with it, cover and allow to rest in a warm place for 10 minutes before serving. During the first week of the mouse diet, I found that my vigor remained unimpaired and that I suffered no apparent ill effects. However, I did begin to develop a craving for fats. It was this which made me realize that my experiment up to this point had been rendered partly invalid by an oversight, and one moreover which did my scientific training no credit. The wolves, as I should have remembered, ate the whole mouse. And my dissections had shown that these small rodents stored most of their fat in the abdominal cavity, adhering to the intestinal mesenteries rather than subcutaneously or in the muscular tissue. It was an inexcusable error I had made, and I hastened to rectify it. From this time to the end of the experimental experimental period, I too ate the whole mouse. Without the skin, of course, and I found that my fat craving was considerably eased. It was during the final stages of my mouse diet that Mike returned to his cabin. He brought with him a cousin of his, the young Eskimo Ootek, who was to become my boon companion and who was to prove invaluable to me in my wolf researches. 
However, on my first encounter with Uutek, I found him almost as reserved and difficult of approach as Mike had been, and in fact still remained. I had made a trip back to the cabin to fetch some additional supplies, and the sight of smoke rising from the chimney cheered me greatly, for, to tell the truth, there had been times when I would have enjoyed a little human companionship. When I entered the cabin, Mike was frying a pan full of venison steak while Uutek looked on. They had been lucky enough to kill a stray animal some sixty miles to the north. After a somewhat awkward few minutes, during which Mike seemed to be hopefully trying to ignore my existence, I managed to break the ice and achieve an introduction to Uutek, who responded by sidling around to the other side of the table and putting as much distance between us as possible. These two then sat down to their dinner, and Mike eventually offered me a plate of fried steak, too. I would have enjoyed eating it, but I was still conducting my experiment, so I had to refuse, after having first explained my reasons to Mike. He accepted my excuses with the inscrutable silence of his Eskimo ancestors, but he evidently passed on my explanation to Uutek, who, whatever he may have thought about it and me, reacted in a typical Eskimoan way. Late that evening, when I was about to return to my observation tent, Uutek waylaid me outside the cabin. With a shy but charming smile, he held out a small parcel wrapped in deerskin. Graciously, I undid the sinew binding and examined the present, for such it was. It consisted of a clutch of five small blue eggs, undoubtedly belonging to one of the thrush species, though I could not be certain of the identification. Grateful, but at a loss to understand the implications of the gift, I returned to the cabin and asked Mike. Eskimo thinks if man eat mice, his parts get small like mice, he explained reluctantly. But if man eat eggs, everything comes out all right. Uutek scared for you. I was in no position, lacking sufficient evidence, to know whether or not this was a mere superstition but there is never any harm in taking precautions, reasoning that the eggs, which weighed less than an ounce in total, total, could not affect the validity of my mouse experiment. I broke them into a frying pan and made a minute omelette. The nesting season was well advanced by this time, and so were the eggs, but I ate them anyway. And since Uutek was watching keenly, I showed every evidence of relishing them. Delight and relief were written large upon the broad and now smiling face of the Eskimo, who was probably convinced that he had saved me from a fate worse than death. Though I never did manage to make Mike understand the importance and nature of my scientific work, I had no such difficulty with Uutek. Or rather, perhaps I should say that though he may not have understood it, he seemed from the first to share my conviction that it was important. Much later, I discovered that Uutek was a minor shaman, or magic priest, in his own tribe, and he had assumed from the tales told him by Mike, and from what he saw with his own eyes, that I must be a shaman too, if of a somewhat unfamiliar variety. From his point of view, this assumption provided an adequate explanation for most of my otherwise inexplicable activities, and it is just possible, though I hesitate to attribute any such selfish motives to Uutek, 
that by associating with me he hoped to enlarge his own knowledge of the esoteric practices of his vocation. In any event, Uutek decided to attach himself to me, and the very next day he appeared at the wolf observation tent, bringing with him his sleeping robe, and obviously prepared for a long visit. My fears that he would prove to be an encumbrance and a nuisance were soon dispelled. Uutek had been taught a few words of English by Mike, and his perceptivity was so excellent that we were soon able to establish rudimentary communications. He showed no surprise when he understood that I was devoting my time to studying wolves. In fact, he conveyed to me the information that he too was keenly interested in wolves, partly because his personal totem, or helping spirit, was Amarok, the wolf being. Uutek turned out to be a tremendous help. He had none of the misconceptions of wolves, which, taken en masse, comprise the body of accepted writ in our society. In fact, he was so close to the beasts that he considered them his actual relations. Later, when I had learned some of his language and he had improved in his knowledge of mine, he told me that as a child of about five years, he had been taken to a wolf den by his father, a shaman of repute, and had been left there for 24 hours, during which time he made friends with and played on terms of equality with the wolf pups and was sniffed at, but otherwise unmolested by the adult wolves. It would have been unscientific for me to have accepted all the things he told me about wolves without auxiliary proof, but I found that when such proof was obtainable, he was invariably right. Chapter 12 Uutek's acceptance of me had an ameliorating effect upon Mike's attitude. Although Mike continued to harbor a deep-rooted suspicion that I was not quite right in the head and might yet prove dangerous unless closely watched, he loosened up as much as his taciturn nature would permit and tried to be cooperative. This was a great boon to me, <clears throat> for I, <clears throat> I was able to enlist his aid as an interpreter between Uutek and myself. Uutek had a great deal to add to my knowledge of wolves' food habits, having confirmed what I had already discovered about the role mice played in their diet. He told me that wolves also ate great numbers of ground squirrels and at times even seemed to prefer them to caribou. These ground squirrels are abundant throughout most of the Arctic, although Wolfhouse Bay lies just south of their range. They are close relatives of the common gopher of the western plains, but unlike the gopher, they have a very poor sense of self-preservation. Consequently, they fall easy prey to wolves and foxes. In summer, when they are well-fed and fat, they may weigh as much as two pounds, so that a wolf can often kill enough of them to make a good meal with only a fraction of the energy expenditure involved in hunting caribou. I had assumed that fishes could hardly enter largely into the wolves' diet, but Uutek assured me I was wrong. He told me he had several times watched wolves fishing for jackfish or northern pike. At spawning time in the spring, these big fish, which sometimes weigh as much as 40 pounds, 
invade the intricate network of narrow channels in boggy marshes along the lake shores. When a wolf decides to go after them, he jumps into one of the larger channels and wades upstream, splashing mightily as he goes and driving the pike ahead of him into progressively narrower and shallower channels. Eventually, the fish realizes its danger and turns to make a dash for open water, but the wolf stands in its way, and one quick chop of those great jaws is enough to break the back of even the largest pike. <clears throat> Uutek told me he once watched a wolf catch seven large pike in less than an hour. Wolves also caught suckers when these sluggish fish were making their spawning runs up the tundra streams, he said. But the wolf's technique in this case was to crouch on a rock in a shallow section of the stream and snatch up the suckers as they passed. A method rather similar to that employed by bears when they are catching salmon. Another, although minor source of food, consisted of arctic sculpins, small fishes which lurk under rocks in shoal water. The wolves caught these by wading along the shore and turning over the rocks with paws or nose, snapping up the exposed sculpins before they could escape. Later in the summer, I was able to confirm Uutek's account of the sculpin fishery when I watched Uncle Albert spend part of an afternoon engaged in it. Unfortunately, I never did see wolves catch pike, but having heard how they did it from Uutek, I tried it myself with considerable success, imitating the reported actions of the wolves in all respects, except that I used a short spear instead of my teeth with which to administer the coup de grace, coup de grace. De These side lights on the lupine character <clears throat> were fascinating, but it was when we came to a discussion of the role played by caribou in the life of the wolf that Uutek really opened my eyes. The wolf and the caribou were so closely linked, he told me, that they were almost a single entity. He explained what he meant by telling me a story which sounded a little like something out of the Old Testament but which, so Mike assured me, was a part of the semi-religious folklore of the inland Eskimos, who, alas for their immortal souls, were still happily heathen. Here, paraphrased, is Uutek's tale. In the beginning there was a woman and a man, and nothing else walked or swam or flew in the world, until one day the woman dug a great hole in the ground and began fishing in it. One by one she pulled out all the animals, and the last one she pulled out of the hole was the caribou. Then Kayla, who is the god of the sky, told the woman the caribou was the greatest gift of all, for the caribou would be the sustenance of man. The woman set the caribou free and ordered it to go out over the land and multiply, and the caribou did as the woman said, and in time the land was filled with caribou, so the sons of the woman hunted well and they were fed and clothed and had good skin tents to live in, all from the caribou. The sons of the woman hunted only the big fat caribou, for they had no wish to kill the weak and the small and the sick, since these were no good to eat, nor were their skins much good. And after a time it happened that the sick and the weak came to outnumber the fat and the strong, and when the sons saw this they were dismayed, and they complained, complained to the woman, then the woman made magic and spoke to Kayla and said, Your work is no good, for the caribou grow weak and sick, and if we eat them we must grow weak and sick too. Kayla heard 
And he said, My work is good. I shall tell Amorak, the spirit of the wolf, and he shall tell his children, and they will eat the sick and the weak and the small caribou, so that the land will be left for the fat and the good ones. And this is what happened. This is why the caribou and the wolf are one. For the caribou feeds the wolf, but it is the wolf who keeps the caribou strong. I was slightly stunned by this story, for I was not prepared to have an unlettered and untutored Eskimo give me a lecture, even in parable form, illustrating the theory of survival of the fittest through the agency of natural selection. In any event, I was skeptical about the happy relationship which Uutek postulated as existing between caribou and wolf. Although I had already been disabused of the truth of a good many scientifically established beliefs about wolves by my own recent experiences, I could hardly believe that the all-powerful and intelligent wolf would limit his predation on the caribou herds to culling the sick and the infirm when he could, presumably take his choice of the fattest and most succulent individuals. Furthermore, I had what I thought was excellent ammunition with which to demolish Uutek's thesis. Ask him then, I told Mike, how come there are so many skeletons of big and evidently healthy caribou scattered around the cabin and all over the tundra for miles to the north of here? Don't need to ask him that, Mike replied with unabashed candor. It was me killed those deer. I got fourteen dogs to feed, and it takes maybe two, three caribou a week for that. I got to feed myself, too. And then I got to kill lots of deer everywhere all over the trapping country. I set four or five traps around each deer like that and get plenty foxes when they come to feed. It is no use for me to shoot skinny caribou. What I got to have is the big fat ones. I was staggered. How many do you think you kill in a year? I asked. Mike grinned proudly. I'm pretty damn good shot. Kill maybe two, three hundred, maybe more. When I had partially recovered from that one, I asked him if this was the usual thing for trappers. Every trapper got to do the same, he said. Indians, white men, all the way down south, far as caribou go in the wintertime. They got to kill lots of them or they can't trap no good. Of course, they not all the time lucky to get enough caribou. Then they got to feed the dogs on fish. But dogs can't work good on fish, get weak and sick, and can't haul no loads. Caribou is better. I knew from having studied the files at Ottawa that there were 1,800 trappers in those portions of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and southern Kiwatin, which composed the winter range of the Kiwatin caribou herd. I also knew that many of those trappers had been polled by Ottawa through the agency of the fur trading companies for information which might help explain the rapid decline in the size of the Kiwatan caribou herd. I had read the results of this poll. To a man, the trappers and traders denied that they killed more than one or two caribou a year, and to a man they had insisted that wolves slaughtered the deer in untold thousands. Although mathematics have never been my strong point, I tried to work out some totals from the information at hand. Being a naturally conservative fellow, I cut the number of trappers in half, and then cut Mike's annual caribou kill in half before multiplying the two. 
no matter how many times I multiplied. I kept coming up with the fantastic figure of 112,000 animals killed by trappers in this area every year. I realized it was not a figure I could use in my reports, not unless I wished to be posted to the Galapagos, Galapagos Islands to conduct a 10-year study on tortoise ticks. In any event, what Mike and Uutek had told me was largely hearsay evidence, and this was not what I was employed to gather. Resolutely, I put these disturbing revelations out of mind and went back to learning the truth the hard way. Chapter 13 Uutek had many singular attributes as a naturalist, not the least of which was his apparent ability to understand wolf language. Before I met Uutek, I had already noted that the variety and range of the vocal noises made by George, Angeline, and Uncle Albert far surpassed the ability of any other animals I knew about, save man alone. In my notebooks, I had recorded the following categories of sounds. Howls, wails, quavers, whines, grunts, growls, yips, and barks. Within each of these categories I had recognized, but had been unable adequately to describe, innumerable variations. I was also aware that canines in general are able to hear, and presumably to make, noises both above and below the range of human registry. The so-called soundless dog whistle, which is commercially available, being a case in point. I knew, too, that individual wolves from my family group appeared to react in an intelligent manner to sounds made by other wolves, although I had no certain evidence that these sounds were anything more than simple signals. My real education in lupine linguistics began a few days after Uutek's arrival. The two of us had been observing the wolf den for several hours without seeing anything of note. It was a dead calm day so that the flies had reached plague proportions, and Angeline and the pups had retired to the den to escape, while both males, exhausted after a hunt which had lasted into mid-morning, were sleeping nearby. I was getting bored and sleepy myself, when Uutek suddenly cupped his hands to his ears and began to listen intently. I could hear nothing, and I had no idea what had caught his attention until he said, Listen! The wolves are talking, and pointed toward a range of hills some five miles to the north of us. During the two-year period that I knew Uutek, his English improved considerably, and I learned quite a lot of Eskimo, so that we were able to converse freely. I have therefore converted our earlier conversations, which tended to be complicated, into a form more understandable to the reader. I listened, but if a wolf was broadcasting from those hills, he was not on my wavelength. I heard nothing except the baleful buzzing of mosquitoes. But George, who had been sleeping on the crest of the esker, suddenly sat up cocked his ears forward, and pointed his long muzzle toward the north. After a minute or two, he threw back his head and howled. 
a long, quavering howl, which started low and ended on the highest note my ears would register. Uutek grabbed my arm and broke into a delighted grin. Caribou are coming. The wolf says so. I got the gist of this, but not much more than the gist, and it was not until we returned to the cabin and I again had Mike's services as an interpreter that I learned the full story. According to Uutek, a wolf living in the next territory to the north had not only informed our wolves that the long-awaited caribou had started to move south, but had even indicated where they were at where they were at the moment. To make the story even more improbable, this wolf had not actually seen the caribou himself, but had simply been passing on a report received from a still more distant wolf. George, having heard and understood, had then passed on the good news in his turn. I am incredulous by nature, and by training, and I made no secret of my amusement at the naivety of Uutek's attempt to impress me with this fantastic yarn. But if I was incredulous, Mike was not. Without more ado, he began packing up for a hunting trip. I was not surprised at his anxiety to kill a deer, for I had learned one truth by now, that he, as well as every other human being on the barrens, was a meat-eater who lived almost exclusively on caribou when they were available. But I was amazed that he should be willing to make a two- or three-day hike over the tundra on evidence as wild as that which Uutek offered. I said as much, but Mike went taciturn and left without another word. Three days later, when I saw him again, he offered me a haunch of venison and a pot of caribou tongues. He also told me he had found the caribou exactly where Uutek, interpreting the wolf message, had said they would be, on the shores of a lake called Kuyak, some forty miles northeast of the cabin. I knew this had to be coincidence, but being curious as to how far Mike would go to pull my leg, I feigned conversion and asked him to tell me more about Uutek's uncanny skill. Mike obliged. He explained that the wolves not only possessed the ability to communicate over great distances, but, so he insisted, could talk almost as well as we could. He admitted that he himself could neither hear all the sounds they made, nor understand most of them, but he said some Eskimos, and Uutek in particular, could hear and understand so well that they could quite literally converse with wolves. I mulled this information over for a while and concluded that anything this pair told me from then on would have to be recorded with a heavy sprinkling of question marks. However, the niggling idea kept recurring that there just might be something in it all, so I asked Mike to tell Uutek to keep track of what our wolves said in future and through Mike to keep me informed. The next morning, when we arrived at the den, there was no sign of either of the male wolves. Angeline and the pups were up and about, but Angeline seemed ill at ease. She kept making short trips to the crest of the den ridge, where she stood in a listening attitude for a few minutes before returning to the pups. Time passed, and George and Uncle Albert were considerably overdue. And on her fifth trip to the ridge, Angeline appeared to hear something. So did Uutek. 
Once more, he went through his theatrical performance of cupping both ears. After listening a moment, he proceeded to try to give me an explanation of what was going on. Alas, we were not yet sufficiently en rapport, and this time I did not even get the gist of what he was saying. I went back to my observing routine while Uutek crawled into the tent for a sleep. I noted in my log that George and Uncle Albert arrived back at the den together, obviously exhausted, at 12.17 p.m. About 2 p.m., Uutek woke up and made amends for his dereliction of duty by brewing me a pot of tea. The next time we encountered Mike, I recalled him to his promise, and he began to interrogate Uutek. Yesterday, he told me, Uutek says that wolf you called George, he send a message to his wife. Uutek hear it good. He tell his wife the hunting is pretty bad, and he going to stay out longer. Maybe not get home until the middle of the day. I remembered that Uutek could not have known at what time the male wolves returned home, for he was then fast asleep inside the tent, and 12.17 is close enough to the middle of the day for any practical purpose. Nevertheless, for two more days my skepticism ruled, until the afternoon when once again George appeared on the crest and cocked his ears toward the north. Whatever he heard, if he heard anything, did not seem to interest him much this time for he did not howl, but went off to the den to sniff noses with Angeline. Uutek, on the other hand, was definitely interested. Excitement filled his face. He fairly gabbled at me, but I caught only a few words. Inuit, Eskimos, and Kayai, come, were repeated several times as he tried passionately to make me understand. When I still looked dense, he gave me an exasperated glance and, without so much as a by-your-leave, headed off across the tundra in a direction which would have taken him to the northwest of Mike's cabin. I was a little annoyed by his cavalier departure, but I soon forgot about it, for it was now late afternoon, and all the wolves were becoming restless as the time approached for the males to set off on the evening hunt. There was a definite ritual about these preparations. George usually began them by making a visit to the den. If Angeline and the pups were inside, his visit brought them out. If they were already outside, Angeline's behavior changed from that of domestic boredom to one of excitement. She would begin to romp, leaping in front of George, charging him with her shoulder and embracing him with her forelegs. George seemed at his most amiable during these playful moments and would sometimes respond by engaging in a mock battle with his mate. From where I sat, these battles looked rather ferocious, but the steadily wagging tails of both wolves showed it was all well meant. No doubt, alerted by the sounds of play, Uncle Albert would appear on the scene and join the group. He often chose to sleep away the daylight hours some distance from the den site, perhaps in order to reduce the possibility of being dragooned into the role of babysitter, at too frequent intervals. With his arrival, all three adult wolves would stand in a circle, sniff noses, wag their tails hard, and make noises. Make noises is not very descriptive, but it is the best I can do. I was too far off to hear more than the louder sounds, and these appeared to be more like grunts than anything else. 
Their meaning was obscure to me, but they were certainly connected with a general feeling of goodwill, anticipation, and high spirits. After anywhere from twenty minutes to an hour of conviviality, in which the pups took part, getting under everyone's feet and nipping promis promiscuously at any adult tail they might encounter, the three adults would adjourn to the crest of the den, usually led by Angeline. Once more they would form a circle, and then lifting their heads high, would sing for a few minutes. This was one of the high points of their day, and it was certainly the high point of mine. The first few times the three wolves sang, the old ingrained fear set my back hairs tingling, and I cannot claim to having really enjoyed the chorus. However, with the passage of sufficient time, I not only came to enjoy it, but to anticipate it with, with acute pleasure. And yet I find it almost impossible to describe, for the only terms at my disposal are those relating to human music, and these are inadequate, if not actually misleading. The best I can do is to say that this full-throated and great-hearted chorus <clears throat> moved me as I have very occasionally been moved by the bowel-shaking throb and thunder of a superb organ played by a man who had transcended his mere manhood. The impassionata never lasted long enough for me. In three or four minutes it would come to an end, and the circle would break up, once more with much tail-wagging, nose-sniffing, and general evidence of goodwill and high content. Then, reluctantly, Angeline would move toward the den, often often looking, looking to watch as George and Albert trotted off along one of the hunting trails. She made it clear that she wished desperately to join them, but in the end she would rejoin the pups instead, and once more submit to their ebullient ebullient demands, either for dinner or for play. On this particular night, the male wolves made a break from their usual routine. Instead of taking one of the trails leading north or northwest, they headed off toward the east, in the opposite direction from Mike's cabin and me. I thought no more about this variation until some time later when a human shout made me turn around. Uutek had returned but he was not alone. With him were three bashful friends, all grinning, and all shy at this first meeting with the strange Kablunak, who was interested in wolves. The arrival of such a mob made further observations that night likely to be unproductive, so I joined the four Eskimos in the trek to the cabin. Mike was home and greeted the new visitors as old friends. Eventually, I found a chance to ask him a few questions. Yes, he told me, Uutek had indeed known that these men were on their way and would soon arrive. How did he know? A foolish question. He knew because he had heard the wolf on the five-mile hills reporting the passage of the Eskimos through his territory. He had tried to tell me about it, but then, when I failed to understand, he had felt obliged to leave me in order to intercept and greet his friends. And that was that. 